0: Hello, everyone. This is Flo.
1: And this is Jesse.
0: Welcome to the gra- uh, to the Real Time History podcast.
1: Catch yourself there.
0: Yeah, you might have seen it in your feed uh, that the podcast changed its name and its logo. You might also have seen that all our social media profiles, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, even our Patreon Discord server and our Patreon page uh, itself are now not called just the great war anymore but they're called real-time history who is real-time history jesse
1: real-time history is us plus tony of course and uh that doesn't mean the great war is going away folks just for any of you great war fans and supporters out there the great war continues it's just we've got all sorts of other cool stuff going on and we wanted to have it under one roof
0: yeah it, it doesn't really make sense for us to create new social media profiles for any other project uh, that we that we start and at the same time it does not it, it led to a bit of confusion and some ruffled feathers especially by the history purists among you that uh, we would com- communicate things outside of the scope of what war one from our great war profiles so we made the decision to avoid the confusion and to also kind of establish who we are a bit better that everything is now called real time history um this is the first official episode under this banner um and i think we have talked about this last week and i think we might just branch out with the podcast at the same time so we could for example interview historians for our other projects as well speaking about other projects today we want to talk to you not about World War I, not about the aftermath of World War I. We want to talk to you about Rhineland 45. What is Rhineland 45, Jesse?
1: Arguably, and this is a bit of a stretch, maybe part of the extra long aftermath of World War I. But uh, Rhineland 45 is our newest project, our newest independent five-part film mini-series, one could say, about the Rhineland campaign on the Western Front in World War II in early 1945. That's what we went with for our next project, and I wasn't super well versed in that campaign before we embarked on the project, but I became quite immersed in it. And it is a pretty interesting campaign that somehow doesn't get the press that Normandy gets, that the market garden landings at Arnhem get, that the bulge gets. It's like after the bulge and Arnhem, it's sort of like, ah, yeah, and then, you know, we mopped it up and won. Yeah. But there's this... Easy, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Ah, yeah, sure, sure. Tell that to the guys on the ground in the Rhineland, you know, mud and forests uh, for a couple of months. So this was quite a, a fascinating campaign. And I think it's one that deserved the attention that we tried to give to it.
0: You call it a mini series in the introduction. And if you look at our previous documentary series, which was about the Battle of Berlin, 16 Days in Berlin, that had 18 episodes. This one has five episodes. So you might think, are we getting less here? Um, but I can tell you, I'm standing right now in the recording booth where Jesse recorded the voiceover for the documentary. And I can tell you, after. Uh, quite a few weeks of filming and recording, and now uh, Tony's eyeshadows from editing this uh, thing. That it's far from a mini-series. Um, I, th- I'm not. I think we might not quite meet the runtime of 16 Days in Berlin, but it's definitely going to be the longest documentary and the most detailed documentary about this. What you could call the last set-piece battle of World War II on the Western Front. Uh, I think we will probably run towards four hours, uh, if I'm doing some quick math in my head here. Uh, And these four hours will be filled with everything from the very start of the campaign, which is uh, Operation Veritable, which is basically the first Canadian army, 21st army group, more precise, going into, like, crossing the border of the German Reich, uh, and then into the area, lower Rhine area there. Um, that's not far away from where Market Garden happens. Might, that might ring a bell to a few more of your World War II buffs out there. And it's going to be the, all the six weeks or even longer um, until they cross the Rhine in Operation Plunder Varsity.
1: Yes, and we don't leave out the... British contribution, of course, which is numerically even larger, even though for most of this campaign, most of the British units involved are part of the 1st Canadian Army. And we, of course, also include the American contribution, which is another one that kind of flies under the radar, where the Ninth Army remains under British command in the 21st Army Group. And... Engages in Operation Grenade a couple weeks after Operation Veritable starts, so later in February 45. And these two operations together are equally important to the ultimate objective of destroying German forces on the western side of the Rhine River to make the crossing easier.
0: You might be wondering, if you're a bit familiar with World War II history, why we haven't talk drop the names Remagen or Ludendorff bridge yet or, or yeah or a certain general pattern um, we do talk about it a bit in the uh, in the documentary series but truth be told it won't get the absolute focus of it that you might think it should get from the legend and the myth that is surrounding this thing so it is true it was one of the first Rhine crossings you know, we could you could argue that even a few American soldiers in Operation Grenade made it over the Rhine already, uh, but only a handful of them. Um, but I would just just have a look. Um, you can find plenty of uh, footage of uh, the Remagen Bridge online. If you look on the east bank of the Rhine, there, you will see that, like not not even two hundred meters after the shores of the Rhine, and maybe fifty meters after the, the bridge ends. Like and for this area of Germany, incredibly high mountain basically starts, and the bridge is a railway bridge, and it goes directly into a railway tunnel. So, even if you wanted to uh, use this new bridgehead that you miraculously just had uh, and created, even if you wanted to use it for for an, uh, to explode it for a breakthrough, like you're gonna have a bad time putting more than like ten tanks there.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky situation. It's this huge dramatic thing. It's great for the legendary side, right? You've got the flamboyant uh, action uh, spontaneously capturing the bridge and so on and so forth. But there's a reason why the high command on the allied side didn't decide to focus its energies in that area. And that's partly because of this extremely difficult terrain. As it turns out, the Germans are so weak, they're still able to, even as a secondary push, begin expanding that bridgehead. But when the planning is being done initially for the push across the Rhine, actually, even in the late fall of 1944, so after Arnhem fails, but before the Battle of the Bulge kind of messes up all of those plans, they're looking at, you know, where should we cross? Well, they don't choose to put the main effort in that area, let's say south of Cologne, because the terrain is so rough on the eastern bank. They choose to put the main effort kind of between Cologne and the Dutch border, because the terrain, in theory, is a little bit easier there, it's flatter, and it'll give them access anyway to the North German Plain if they wanted to go to Berlin, or if they wanted to capture uh, the coast to prevent, you know, U-boats from using coastal bases and that sort of thing. And there's a bit of a political advantage as well in that the British can also fully participate in the main thrust, right? There were these kind of arguments. Monty wanted to lead the main thrust and then um, 12th Army Group wanted to lead the main thrust, Bradley and so on. So there's a combination of things, but this, for this moment that we're talking about, so February 8th until the end of March, this was to be the main effort. Afterwards, they switched it farther south once the Americans were in a better position to go across central Germany. But this is the main effort at the time. And I think that's something that also gets lost kind of in the shuffle. So I thought that was one of the one of the more interesting parts leading into the campaign to sort of build that context. Why is this happening here? And what are they trying to do?
0: Yeah, and um, I think speaking about uh, terrain, uh, one of the one of the things that we did, again, that we also did for our previous documentary, uh, 16 Days in Berlin, is that we filmed on location. So we actually went to the Rhineland twice, once for a preliminary, let's say, reconnaissance trip. And uh, the other trip was just this spring in uh, absolutely abysmal weather we went to the rhineland again to film in some important locations from operation veritable um, we also went like filmed acro- uh, around the rhine on both shores basically We had a look at uh, one of the landing zones of the airdrop that happens that's the varsity part of varsity plunder and i think you know, that's why battlefield tours are so important, you could say, because it gives you such a good insight to have a look on location at like the terrain and the features, get a sense of the scale. And uh, yeah, for example, there is a pretty big engagement there, biggest Canadian tank battle uh, in the entire war, which is called the Battle of the Hochwald Gap. And standing at the Hochwald Gap, and seeing some of the features that are described in like primary and secondary accounts of the battle gives you a different appreciation for what happened there and how tough it must have been to fight there.
1: No question. And us being there in March meant that we got to enjoy, obviously in a much more relaxed context than 1945, but we also got to enjoy suffer the miserable cold and wet and windy weather that uh, kind of is the norm in that part of the world in the late winter slash very early spring and filming under those circumstances was a royal pain i can tell you that much so fighting was obviously that you know multiplied by a thousandfold
0: yep uh, that was um, let's say the sacrifices that we make nowadays to bring you this uh, kind of history documentary. And another location that we went to uh, was the remains of a, of a brickyard in the town of Rees, where uh, we met with our local guide there called Bernd. And Bernd has been studying the fate of the forced laborers uh, and the Jewish population in the town of Rees, which is north of Wesel. Um, You will get a bit more familiar with the geography when you watch the documentary. Um, But uh, we thought it would be a very, very important aspect of this campaign to kind of have a look at how the forced laborers um, kind of were involved uh, in this operation, this campaign in this part of Germany. Because like with um, other aspects of the Holocaust and other parts of the war, you know, in spring 45, you have all these horrible images, of course, of the liberations of the concentration camps by the Western allies and also by the Soviets. But the Holocaust has so many, you know, shades of misery here that uh, we we figured it would be a good approach to kind of have a look at, you know, just pick this spot that we don't know yet and where we haven't been yet um, and see, okay, what did the Holocaust actually look there?
1: Yeah, I mean, and in the wider sense of when we're trying to tell the story of part of World War II. It just made sense, I think, to me anyway, that we integrate this aspect into the story, because you can't really separate them so cleanly. And I feel like that was a pretty important thing, an important decision we took early on to include it, because in just in this area of the lower Rhineland on both sides of the river, the estimates are nearly 400,000 forced laborers. That is a lot of people. And they are in every village, every town, every factory pretty much in this whole region. They're part of everyday life. They're a part of how the military campaign plays out because as the Allies advance, the Germans are trying to deport these people away from the front lines at the last possible instant because they're they're forcing them to dig the defenses so it's so intertwined with the military situation that if we want to do a a documentary about war or about a campaign in the war, this is definitely a part of it, in like every conceivable way. And then the Allies, of course, when they liberate quite a lot of these forced laborers, including this infamous camp at Rees.
0: Hell of Rees, they called it.
1: Exactly. Which had mostly, but not only, Dutch forced laborers in it. They have to do something with them. So they have to use resources. They also have an intelligence situation where they need to identify these people and process them and put them in camps to treat them medically and all this kind of stuff. So it's a huge part of what's happening on the ground. And it just had to be a part of, uh, of us telling this story because I don't think it made sense to do it otherwise.
0: Yeah. Uh, um, Chris from Military Aviation History put this in a Twitter thread yesterday about the, uh, the Luftwaffe's involvement in the Holocaust. And this... Uh, he he basically said like without this for industrial scale of forced labor you don't have any german war machine and you also and the, you know, here it comes back to the rhineland you also don't have any of the german defenses because uh, where we went where we filmed is uh, that's where the westwall used to be the famous westwall the Siegfried line uh, which was like a defensive system they built along the german dutch and uh, german french and german belgium border um, there weren't many traces of it left uh, at the very northern part where we filmed, but we went a bit further south in the region of Aachen. Uh, you know about the around the infamous Hürtgenwald, uh, and we, you know, the dragon's teeth, uh, the famous ones, they're still there. Uh, and you can guess who dug the trenches and, uh, you know, had to build the, these kind of fortifications, useless as they were by this by the late stage of the war, but. You know, that's just how it happens. And the same is true, of course, for tank production, uh, etc.
1: Well, of everything production, essentially, it's, you know, it's a, it's an, you cannot separate out all of that slave labor aspect and Holocaust aspect from the war effort and the military side, unless you're taking a micro focus on a particular question you know it's got to be it's got to be part of it and and it also has an extremely compelling human component when you do drill down to the individual stories and experiences obviously it's harrowing and it's one thing to talk about it on this meta level that it's essential to the war effort that it's present on the ground that the armies have to take this into account on both sides in different ways but the personal stories about how this plays out in people's lives and the moments that they experience usually terrible until the very end when sometimes then you know there's this joyful liberation they are they are extremely dramatic and i was hard pressed to choose some to include in the film because obviously you know we couldn't pick all of them and i tried to jam a bunch more into the companion book that if you are out there, you can also order in addition to the film, just to kind of reflect that that degree of how many people are being affected and how dramatic the situations they found themselves in actually were.
0: Yeah, yeah, we also uh, again took a, lo- a good time to dig up some local uh, sources to also include German civilians' perspectives. Um, you know, sometimes when the Americans uh, ride into town, because uh, once Operation Grenade kicks off, it goes relatively quickly. You know, they they are having breakfast or lunch uh, when the Sherman tanks roll through the street. Uh, but uh, it's sometimes even you know or even much more dramatic. You know when. There's fighting in a village, like uh, we focus on a village called Kavenheim. There are still civilians in the village as well. Um, these civilians, if they're farmers, they, pro- they sometimes even also have forced laborers. So it's as you can see, it's all getting intertwined. And uh, that, I think, uh, is kind of the fascination of uh, having this hyper-local uh, approach to it. And uh, I think that's one of the things I, uh, again, appreciated learning about, or I appreciated learning Uh, about it in such a way for this particular battle and this particular region. I wish I could do this for every, you know, region of the war because it gives you a much deeper understanding. But uh, that might uh, take some resources and some time if we were to do that uh, because...
1: I don't want to keep people hanging, though. I mean, I've been describing, we've been talking about this in generalities, but maybe I should throw in a couple of, just a couple of the anecdotes, the situations that struck me really the most and that I still sometimes think about, right? And you mentioned Kevinheim, and that's why that kind of light bulb went off because we talk about the fighting in this small village. It's not special. It's typical. The British... Storm the village. They have a very difficult time because of the mud, because of the dug in prepared German positions, which are defended by paratroopers, German paratroopers, the infamous Fallschirmjäger, for those of you who like the sound of those German words, um, who are not anymore jumping from airplanes or even being trained to jump from airplanes at this stage of the war, and who are not. (laughs) Exactly. And there's no real, you know, operations that it could, they could use that effectively, but they're also not quite the type of, I hesitate to use the word, but let's say elite units that they were earlier in the war as well. But nonetheless, they're the most effective infantry ground troops that the Germans have on the Western front. And they're defending this village. Now, when the British start to get into the village, And there's some really compelling detailed accounts of that as well. There's a Victoria Cross that's won as the British are on the edge of the village, storming this row of houses. There's a Scottish soldier who leads the charge and is killed while doing so, and he wins a Victoria Cross. And just around the corner from that there's a firefight going on between the British who are in a shoe factory and the German paratroopers who are in a farmhouse. And in the basement of that farmhouse is the farming family. And one of the women in that family gave an account to a local historian who published his history book locally. And uh, we got our hands on that book. So, you know, they're in the they're in the basement, these civilians, they're afraid of the paratroopers as well, who are telling them that if they don't behave, the German paratroopers are telling this to the German family, if you don't, you know, shut up and stay in the basement, we're going to force you out and whatever happens to you in the crossfire happens to you, right? And when the British start bombarding earlier that morning as well, before the firefight begins, The grandmother, who's in her 80s, dies of the stress from being under artillery bombardment. So they have the corpse of the grandmother in the basement while all this insanity is going on. And then, in the end, after the British capture the house and the village, they help this family bury the grandmother in the yard temporarily. So these types of wild situations repeat themselves in nearly every village for this entire campaign and obviously others as well so discovering those was like a roller coaster of emotions and then choosing them was obviously quite quite a difficult thing to do
0: yeah totally Uh, i I, it's a good example again uh, now you mentioned the interaction between the um, the paratroopers and the family because we have quite a few accounts there uh, to kind of highlight the interaction between uh, the german military uh the soldiers uh or the ncos uh, let's say up to that level and the civilians because of course the like a the civilians in this, in this in the cities they know how the war you know that the war has come home because since as, as you know the latest 1944 the towns uh, in the area get like bombarded and in preparation for this campaign once again they get bombarded by the royal air force and the u.s air force um, but like in their interest of the civilians is if they see a german soldier they're not going to hang out their flag uh, the the nazi flag out of the uh, the window the one thing they do want is for them to ideally retreat or make it as quick as possible so that you know they don't offer offer too much resistance so their property and their house uh, doesn't get destroyed they don't get killed uh cattle survives uh, etc so that they can just Whatever comes next, it comes quick, and you know it's not a it's not a slog uh, to go through. Um, and I thought that was quite fascinating. And also, I, I think we mentioned at some point a, a reminder from high command coming towards to the ground troops, reminding them that they're now fighting on German soil and that uh, that they shouldn't like live off the lands uh, like soldiers used to um, do. And how the Wehrmacht behaved in most occupied countries.
1: Yeah, right. There's this. There's this announcement that goes down reminding people, hey, this is Germany, you can't just steal everything that you want and need. You can't just like take everything without hesitation. Now, of course, that happened quite a bit, but they're attempting to change the behavior of the institution that they created and sort of fed that behavior for years. And obviously, you're not going to change that entirely overnight. So it wasn't like in the Soviet Union or anything, but certainly German civilians had to worry about their own troops as well as, you know, being fearful of the allies. Another another one that stuck out at me was uh, a young Soviet girl. Because often we think about, you know, it's Western Europe, most of the Soviet situation is in the East, but they used so much Soviet slave labor that it was everywhere. And sometimes they took quite young People to be slaves. And in this case, we had an interesting account from a young Soviet woman. She was 10 when the Germans arrived in Kiev, in today's Ukraine, and they grabbed her mother and I guess her because they ended up in Western Germany working. I don't know the extent to which the girl was forced to work, but the mother certainly was. And then they're liberated by American troops who give them candy. And she sees an African-American or an African-origin person for the first time who's giving her candy. And this was like a huge experience in her life, a huge joy of being liberated. And and that was quite an interesting account to read as well. A bit tricky to translate from Russian, but I think I managed it all right.
0: Yeah, um, one of the highlights for me uh, and Tony here in Berlin was um, that we got to interview World War Two veteran, a German one that uh, took only a small part, but he took part in the operations that we covered. So, veteran testimonies is something that uh, we get a lot of requests uh, from uh, for from our viewers, from our fans and uh, there is a certain fascination of course with individual accounts and you know considering the micro level that we focus on sometimes in our engagements it, may, it can it makes sense to talk to veterans uh, or to rely on primary sources that they might have written down and everything ideally you know um, and this is what happened in this case ideally somebody already did some uh, checking of it to uh, to see if it's, you know, valid and the memory is kind of like uh, correct in uh, in certain ways. And uh, through a few contacts, we got in, con- uh, in contact, through a few corners, we got in touch with the Werki family, uh, who is from Halbe actually, uh, which is also a super interesting place. I always wanted to visit uh, uh, south of Berlin. You might know it from 16 years in Berlin, from the Halber pocket. So we went to Halber in uh, March and interviewed Erich Welke, who was a 18-year-old or 19-year-old dispatch runner for a Fallschirmjäger paratrooper unit uh, in the late stages of the war. He fought in the uh, Hürtgenwald, on the northern edge of the Hürtgenwald, and he had fought in the Battle of the Bulge. And, uh, you know, through the retreating movements, he basically, even though I don't think he knew it, Specifically, but he did take part in the early stages of Operation Grenade uh, when he was, uh, until he was captured by the Americans. And we talked a bit to him about his experience um, being like a, a relatively young soldier at that time, about, um, you know, the morale of the troops there and his experience. He did he never shot anybody. Uh, he was actually also quite proud of that because his father, who was a World War I veteran, told him in war... Being a coward is nothing to be ashamed of.
1: Wise words. My grandfather basically said the same thing as well. Uh, You know, when he was telling us stories about his war experience. And he was also briefly involved in this campaign, which we mention in the film as well. Only for a few days of action, because he was recovering from wounds up until then. But that's another kind of interesting element to the film. But I really liked... um, Uh, Mr. Volki's testimony, because it came from this very different type of perspective, I guess you could say. It was very interesting to hear him sort of describe his experiences without combat, essentially, as an integral part of the war experience. Well, without a direct aggressive participation in combat, let's say. Obviously, he was, you know, under fire and so on.
0: Yeah, as a yeah as a dispatch runner, he was definitely at the front line, and he saw some harrowing stuff. And uh, you know, we, a lot of his uh, quotes and everything are in the in the documentary itself. The one thing that really stuck with me is uh, the whole situation when he when he got ca- when they got captured. Um, to, it really was one of these things that you all, all, always read about when you read soldiers' accounts, uh, how life and death were like. Extremely random. So they they took positions in two different um, like bunkers, so to speak Um, and the one bunker uh, was uh, armed uh, and or manned and armed by some like still very very fanatic Nazis who like when they saw so the Sherman tanks coming in and the Americans coming in, they opened fire with their Panzerfaust and everything, and they wanted to, like, kind of, you know, they, they followed basically the the ideal that the German propaganda was painting at that point, you know, uh, no step backwards, defend the, the homeland, etc., etc. et cetera. And they got completely wiped out, like the bunker got completely wiped out because you know the Americans they um he also described that like when when you shoot when you shot at the Americans at that stage in the war they shot back as much as they could with everything they got because everybody on the American side was also afraid of dying at that point in the late stage of the war um so and but in his bunker where he was he he had an an NCO who, who before the war used to be a, a correspondent for an American news, newspaper for a German newspaper in America. So he spoke fluent English and they just surrendered to them and the NCO was able to communicate with them in fluent English. So, you know, and for them, you know, uh, surrendering and going and, um, you know, becoming prisoners of war was definitely prefer- preferable to, you know, making the Americans pay for every meter. So that kind of experience, I think, was very illustrative because, and you know, you could say it was complete chance. He could have just e- as easily been you know, stationed in that other
1: bunker. Yeah, I mean, that kind of situation repeats itself across this campaign. And I think somehow the intensity of it doesn't doesn't come through in, like you don't think of the Rhineland campaign as often as Normandy or the Bulge. And if for those of us who know of it, somehow it's a part of that tail end and, and being reminded, you know, researching the film, writing the script. And I hope for anyone out there who watches the film, they'll get the same or similar kind of impression that intensity is just so extreme, even though the outcome is not in doubt, even though the allies outnumber the Germans, other than some isolated tactical situations. It's so intense. I mean, the battle for the Hochwald Gap, for example. There's no question that at some stage the Allies are going to win the war and the Allies are going to capture this forest and the little gap that they're trying to get through. But just a few hundred Germans in a makeshift Fallschirmjäger regiment supported by a couple of dozen left tanks, which is all that the 116th Panzer Division had left, they're able to hold up a couple of Canadian divisions, well they couldn't apply their whole force at the same time, but nonetheless, they were to hold up a far superior Canadian force for nearly a week. Just kind of edging forward in the mud of these fields. The tanks keep getting stuck, they can't advance with the infantry, the infantry comes under fire, they dig in, they're exposed. This happens sort of day after day for about six days. Two Victoria crosses are won, a couple of Knights crosses are given out on the German side as well. And quite a lot of veterans described the, the Operation Veritable, including Operation Blockbuster, which was the one focused on the Hochwald Gap, as the, the heaviest fighting since the Normandy campaign. And. You know, that wasn't clear to me before getting into the topic uh, for this project. So that that's a pretty key element of all this.
0: Yeah, it absolutely is. And um, if you also are thinking now, well, this uh, plan to attack uh, prepared German positions head on seems kind of dodgy. Uh, we also do talk a bit about the controversies and like the back and forth between the generals and the uh, kind of alternative plans that were on the table. So everyone from Monty to the soldiers on the ground uh, gets his share. So Jesse, now we talked for about half an hour about why why a Rhin- the Rhineland campaign is uh, super exciting and super interesting and worth learning about. Let's talk a bit about how people can engage with the product or the multiple products that we poured all our knowledge and research into under the banner Rhineland 45. So the first thing you could always do is, you know, we describe it as a documentary series and we are documentary filmmakers. So the main thing that you can do is you can go to our website, realtimehistory.net and you can get streaming access to streamed documentary in 4K on our website. So it's five episodes, and um, by the time this podcast goes live, at least the first episode should be already out. If people want to dive even even deeper into this topic, Jesse, what, could, what else could they do? Of
1: course, there are other options in addition to the film. There's a companion book, as I think I mentioned somewhere in the last half hour. It not only contains the... Um, a book-friendly version of the script where we slightly modify it so it reads uh, better with footnotes and so on, so you can see the sources that we used and what we've based our our script on. It also has additional material, plus it has another full chapter of just extra first-person accounts that we couldn't cram into the film since it's already pushing four hours yeah.
0: so it's that's already it's already suffering from mission creep as you could say
1: <laughs> exactly yeah oh totally um i remember those some of those early brainstorming meetings and when i look back from the ideas we had to start versus the product we have now we definitely we definitely aimed higher than we originally planned so there's the companion book so there's also going to be a virtual battlefield tour the first edition of which might have already been public and happened by the time that this podcast comes out but we will offer it in conjunction with battle guide virtual tours i hope anyway at some time i expect at some time in the future once again where i will give a live virtual tour of the battle of the hochwald gap that we talked about
0: what's a virtual battlefield tour jesse how can i envision this
1: Yeah, thank you. (laughs) So what a virtual battlefield tour means is that we kind of take you into this space live online where we can show you through an enhanced version, let me put it that way, of a satellite view of the Earth, what's going on. We can follow along with the movement of the front line, how the campaign progresses, how the battle progresses. And we inject into that archival pictures to show you how things looked then and compare it to what we can show you now on the 3D satellite map. We also have an audio element where we've got voiceovers of accounts of what's happening at the time. And we mix all of this together to give you a virtual battlefield tour with drone footage as well that we've taken. So we hope that this combination, I mean, Given the pandemic, and sometimes just given normal geography, you can't come and visit the battlefields very easily. But we hope that we can give you a kind of enhanced battlefield tour with some elements that you couldn't get if you were on the ground. There are kind of pros and cons to an actual on the ground tour versus a virtual tour. But we can include some things in the virtual tour that wouldn't be possible on the ground. So that's kind of the package that we hope we can provide with this Hochwald Gap Rhineland 45. Virtual Battlefield Tour that will be offered a few times throughout the year.
0: And, and that's not all. There's one more thing, because you just mentioned actual Battlefield Tours. There is also going to be an actual Battlefield Tour Uh, with a local company here uh, run by Matthew, our friend Matthew. Uh, It's called On the Front Tours and uh, he has been showing us around uh, for our documentary projects. Uh, He's a Battlefield guide here from Berlin, though he's originally from Australia, by the way. And we are planning to have an actual Battlefield tour in, I think, September Um, and I'm knocking on wood here, <laughs> We hope, as you can, th- uh, at the moment, the vaccination rates and the, num- the, the COVID numbers are going respectively up and down uh, here in Germany, at least, and all over Europe, uh, and certainly also in the US and the UK. So it looks like this will definitely be happening. And yeah, it will basically be a three day tour of the Rhineland battlefield with you, Jesse, with me, Flo and with Tony. And
1: and with Matt, you know,
0: and with Matt, of course, yeah. Um, we're kind of still ironing out um, if we can get one big bus or two small buses. There is a few logistical questions there, but uh, if you're interested in it, uh, it's on on the front tour slash Ryan in 45. Uh, I will put a link in the show notes as well. Um, naturally, that's a bit more pricey than um, you know getting a streaming pass or buying the book. But um, if you are a fan of battlefield tours and if you have the Means to travel and the time to travel this year. Um, might we suggest that this could be a great idea?
1: It'll be a good time.
0: Definitely. Cool. So, with that, all that being said about Ryan Forty Five, um, we hope you enjoy what we did here. Um, in the next episode of the Real Time History Podcast, we might just talk uh, and reveal our next project, uh, which will come right on the heels of uh, publication of Ryan Forty Five which will be nothing like Ryan 45, uh, will not be about World War II, will not be about the 20th century even. And we're very excited to share it, but not yet.
1: Indeed, the suspension, the suspense and the tension, also known as the suspension, is building. Uh, but I'm excited about the new project as well. I think it's going to complement everything we've done quite nicely and fit in to the real-time history uh, portfolio pretty well.
0: Yeah, I think so too. And hopefully for the next, for that episode, or the, at least the next one after that, we will get some historians on the line again, so that they can tell us about our and theirs favorite parts of history.
1: Indeed, looking forward to it.